0: one three eight one four five six seven, or by emailing your questions or comments from collegeview.com. We hope you'll take out your Bibles and study along with us as we begin an exciting study of God's Word on this edition of the Virtual Bible Study.
1: And welcome into the Virtual Bible Study for Thursday, October fifteenth, two thousand nine. Years going by fast. My name is Jacob Gwynn. My father, Greg Gwyn, is here.
2: Hello, Jake, Dad. Jacob. Good evening. Great to be with you tonight. Looking forward to our discussion.
1: And we have an important discussion. We have someone between the two of us tonight. Jim Walsh is here from Mount Pleasant, Tennessee. Hello, Jim. Welcome. Hello. Good evening. Glad you're here. And Jim is here because he is our resident expert.
2: That's right. We we called we we called up the the reserves to, to give us backup tonight. Uh, no, seriously. Uh, we tonight in our study. We want to follow up on our discussion from last week. Last week, we had David from St. Peter's, Missouri, uh, who is a Catholic, and we talked about some of the differences between what the Catholics teach in practice and what we believe the Bible teaches. Uh, there were several things mentioned. We didn't get to pursue all of those, and there was still quite a bit of interest at the end of the program, and so we thought it would be advisable to have a follow-up program tonight. And so we asked Jim Walsh to join us. Jim, you are a former Catholic. You, you actually your your uh, route is just the opposite from David that we interviewed last week. David had been a member of the Church of Christ, left that and became a Catholic. You used to be a Catholic and now you are a member of the Church of Christ, and so you know a lot of the a lot of the background of Catholic doctrine. And so we're going to call upon you to to talk about some of that tonight. Do my best. All right. All right. We'd like to hear
1: from you on the program tonight. You can call eight seven seven. Three eight one four That is toll free. We'll pay the bill tonight, or you can send us an email to questions at com. We'd also encourage you to go into the chat room if you're watching us from Ustream.tv. The instructions are at the bottom of your screen, and you can join in with other listeners on the program tonight. We do look forward to hearing from you on the program. If you listened to the program last week, maybe you had some thoughts about some things that you heard and you'd like to comment, or maybe some ideas come to mind as we discuss. Uh, what we're going to discuss tonight, and you'd like to join in. We'd love to hear from you on the program tonight. Dad, you sent out some questions for us to consider right. earlier today.
2: Uh, earlier today to our update list. We always remind you, you can get on that update list if you're not by just sending us an email, questions at collegeu.com, put on the subject line, add me to your list, and we'll do it. These are the five things that, I, as I reviewed the program from last week, Jacob, these were the things that I thought were topics that sort of left hanging, didn't get fully discussed, and we even had some follow-up emails after the program concerning these things. And so uh, here are the five that I picked out. We can talk about some other things, too, if our listeners are interested. But um, number one, since Catholics argue that we need an infallible guide to properly understand the Scriptures, of course, they argue that the leadership of the Catholic Church is that infallible guide, what does the Bible say about modern-day revelation and miraculous gifts? In other words, they're claiming a direct guidance from God, a, a, a divine knowledge or a divine understanding of the scriptures imparted directly to them by the Holy Spirit. What does the Bible say about that? Does are such things still happening in the world today? Number two, can the Catholic practice of celibacy for priests and nuns be supported by the scriptures? So number two, celibacy. Number three, is there any truth to the claim that the Catholic church should be credited with establishing the proper canon of the scriptures? They claim they did. They claim that all of us who are Protestants are really dependent upon them for having determined What should and should not be in the Bible? We want to talk about that. And then we want to, last week was mentioned the subject of purgatory. We want to talk about that subject just briefly. And also, number five, is it right to pray to Mary? There was some comments and questions about prayer to Mary. So those are the five things that we want to attack uh and so we will uh we will go about them sort of in that order by the way jacob in the chat room i see some people are lighting up the chat room already they're they're trickling in a little bit late tonight but they're in there but i see a number of people who are just sort of watching and not participating if you want to participate in that chat room uh you have got to sign up for a a free account and it's simple to, to to register but we hope that more of you will do that. Get in there and, and get yourself an account. You can make up a, uh, an anonymous sort of name. You don't have to be fully identifying yourself. But uh, get in there and participate in that chat room. All right. We'd like to hear from you on the
1: program. Join in now. We would, should at the beginning of the program, Dad. A lot of people are listening to the program perhaps in the podcast and recorded version, and you're not listening to us live on Thursday nights. We would encourage you if you have any comments about the things you hear on this program or in any program, send us an email and let us know your thoughts. Uh, the discussion tonight is the result of one of our listeners doing that, uh, emailing us a comment, and so we would love to talk about any th- question you might have at any time. So please give us an email if you have questions about the things that you heard, or you have a question about any Bible subject that you'd like to have discussed on the virtual Bible study. Well. We talked last week with David, and again, we should reiterate that we are thankful that David was willing to have a discussion with us last week, Dad, and uh, we're just wanting sure. to look to the Scriptures and compare what was said last week with what the Scriptures teach, and that's all what we're all about tonight and
2: every night on the Virtual Bible Study. Exactly right. This question is still on our minds from that program last week, is the idea that the Catholic Church, Jim, the Catholics are maintaining that the, the hierarchy, the leadership of the Catholic Church are the are the proper interpreters of the Bible? That, that was basically the main thing we talked about last week. Was the idea that people can't understand the Bible, certainly can't understand it alike. It's just mass confusion. We need somebody who is the, the appointed one, designated to interpret and tell us what we're supposed to do with the Bible.
3: I think that's pretty much the gist of it at least that 's what I know that 's what I was taught when when I was growing up is that the uh, the Pope is infallible, and that means that in matters of doctrine that he cannot be wrong, and that all Catholics then uh, take their uh, marching orders, in effect, from him. But, you know, when we look at the scriptures, there, there are several verses that just could jump out at us and help us understand that, that Jesus never gave up his headship of the church. It was never a situation where he handed anything over, you know, such as the the Catholic belief that Jesus uh, handed over the head of the church uh, to Peter. When we look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22, and it talks about the place of Jesus with respect to the church, it says, uh, and hath put all things under his feet and gave him, present tense, to be the head over all things to the church. So it's talking about the fact that one of the things uh, that we see as an evidence or a witness of the resurrection of Jesus was God's affirmation that Jesus is the Christ. He is Lord and he is Christ and he is head of the church. He's never given that up. And one example would be found in the book of Revelation. You know, any of us that have studied the book of Revelation know that those letters to the seven churches come from who? They come from Jesus. Yeah. Jesus sent those letters, uh used John, sent those letters to uh, the seven churches. So Jesus has never, even in the lifetime of the apostles, uh, after his resurrection, never gave up headship of the church. Well, you know, that passage in
2: Matthew 16, when Jesus said to Peter, uh, or verse 19, Matthew 16, 19, I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever thou shalt loose on mm-hmm. earth shall be loosed in heaven. If I gave you the keys to my house, it doesn't mean I gave you the house right. to your possession. It right. means I gave you a way in. Right. And that's that's what he's saying to Peter. I'm going to I'm going to to give to you the the way into the kingdom. And and you're going to you're going to teach and the things you teach will be bound on earth as they are in heaven. In other words, the, the, he's not he's not going to arbitrarily set rules. He's going to set the rules of heaven as to how to get into the kingdom. But it doesn't say that he's the head of the kingdom or anything
3: like that. Right, but what what Catholic doctrine does is it takes verse 19 and it says, what Jesus was telling Peter was, Peter, you have this authority. Whatever you decide, we in heaven will agree to. So they look at verse 19 and it says, Whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. They say that means Peter bound it and we are obligated in heaven to agree to it. Whereas what we find is that Peter was being told, as Jesus promises in John 14, 15, 16, the apostles would be guided by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, whatever they taught would already have been confirmed as the proper teaching in heaven. Just as Jesus came and taught the Father's will, thus whatever he taught was bound in heaven. When um, we look at uh, Revelation chapter 5 and the handing of God uh, with that scroll, and it talks about the fact that only the Lamb was worthy to unbind that scroll and, and to pass that information out. So Matthew 16, 19 is not saying that Peter would then decide what would be right and what would be wrong, and that would obligate God to agree to it. It was saying exactly the opposite of that. It was saying because of the other scriptures we see that Peter was given a guarantee. You will be guided so that whatever you teach will already be authorized by God in heaven.
2: You know, Peter's not the only one to whom that statement was made in Matthew 19. Uh, Matthew... Matthew 18, mm-hmm. verse 18, mm-hmm. not just to Peter,
3: right.
2: it was said the same thing. Whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. My understanding of the construction of that in the original language implies that what you shall bind on earth has been bound in right. heaven. In other right. words, it's already God is revealing these things right. to you. This is already heaven's law, and you're going to be revealing it to mankind
1: and jim you know that uh, that position that peter has that authority really puts him as you said uh, above jesus jesus would be subservient to what peter
3: And, 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 you know, again, if we, just a a cursory reading of the gospel to go through it, we have that situation where uh, James and John are arguing with Jesus about who's going to be greatest, and Jesus chastises them for having that uh, concept of thinking one would be above another. So then if Jesus chastises the apostles, in effect, by saying, you seek to be like the Gentiles by having positions of authority one above another, and then turn around and say, so I'm going to make Peter ahead of everybody. You yeah. know, when Peter's given the keys of the kingdom, as you allude to, it's the concept of opening up the kingdom. Peter had the, the responsibility, the privilege of opening up the kingdom, which he does on the day of Pentecost by being the speaker to reveal that Jesus is the Christ about the church and the plan of salvation. Thus, he opens it up. And so uh, but it is interesting to think that the symbol of the pope is a set of keys, you know. Yeah.
1: And so, so their position puts Peter ahead of Christ, and really would put Peter ahead of God. And, well, and, and, it, it really,
3: in many respects, what it says is that Peter was at that point given the blessing of being infallible; that he would, he would, whatever he would teach, would be bound in heaven; that whatever he said would be agreed upon in heaven. And it's really the opposite. I mean, God has never given up His sovereignty, and Christ has never given up His sovereignty.
1: All right, uh, excellent point. 877-381-4567, questions at collegeview.com. And, you know, it is interesting that uh, they put Peter on such a high plane. They put the pope at what they call apostolic succession on the same plane such, to such an extent, uh, Jim, that uh, they call him Holy Father.
3: Right, they do. That's what the, the word uh, the pope means or papa. But, you know, you think about you know, the, the consideration that Peter supposedly was the first pope. Well, Peter was married. And Peter also was rebuked by Paul. Uh, two things that you'll never find uh, being admitted about a pope today, being married or being rebuked by anyone.
2: I think we're going to call coming in, Jacob, but before uh, we're still trying to get that lined out. Let me read to you uh, from our friend Patrick in Birmingham, Alabama, who is a Catholic. And he wrote this. from He he, he suggested Second Peter 1, verses 19 through 21. It says, We have the word of prophecy made more sure, where until you do well that you take heed, as unto a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for no prophecy ever came by the will of man, but men spake from God, being moved by the Holy Spirit. Now, he says, This passage shows that Scripture is not to be interpreted privately or by an individual. Peter states that the scriptures were inspired of the Holy Spirit and the conclusion he draws from this is that the scriptures must be interpreted by someone who is inspired by the Holy Spirit. If your assertion is true that no one is inspired by the Holy Spirit any longer, then you must also conclude that no one is allowed to interpret scripture anymore. Yet Peter says that we have received the word of prophecy. Who is we? The apostles. And he says that you do well that you take heed. Take heed to what? The word of prophecy and to the interpretation of it which the apostles teach. And clearly, this does not include individuals' interpretation of that prophecy. Thus, the divinely ordained need for an interpreter inspired by the Holy Spirit. I want to tell you, Patrick usually has some very insightful comments, but Patrick has missed this dramatically. He has completely misapplied this text, and he has he has read into it things that are not there whatsoever. Let me read to you from. I, th-
1: the- I think we may have Patrick on the phone. Okay. Uh, Patrick, is this Patrick from Birmingham?
4: Oh uh, yes, it's the same one who, who wrote that email Well, good. Oh, Patrick.
2: Patrick, great. Glad you called, because, because I, I've got to tell you, I think you missed it on this passage badly. Uh, let me read to you, this is just another translation, New International Version says, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scriptures came about by the prophet's own interpretation, for prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spake as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. When it talks about interpretation or private interpretation, what the text is saying is that the scripture did not originate through men's own interpretation or by their own opinion. Rather, the scripture originated by men who were moved by the Holy Spirit. This isn't saying anything about our interpretation of the scripture. This passage is talking about the fact that the scripture didn't originate through men's own private opinion or interpretation. It it originated through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Go ahead, Patrick. Okay. Well, I mean, uh, I believe you're you're right, uh, at, at least in heart, that uh,
4: the the uh, the passage does um, say that um, you know it uh, the scriptures were were written by those inspired by the Holy Spirit. But um, you know, I've uh, I've really never uh, considered uh, well, that. Interpretation
2: well, my Jesus. point to you, Patrick, is that this passage is not talking at all about anybody interpreting the Scripture after it was written. This is talking about how the Scripture originated. In fact, I have here the, the New American Bible, which is the, the Catholic translation. It says the same thing. It says, first, you must understand this, that there is no prophecy contained in Scripture, which is a, a, which is a personal interpretation. Prophecy has never been put forward by man's willing it. It is rather that men impelled by the Holy Spirit have spoken under God's influence. And so even the Catholic translation of the New Testament uh, in in this passage is not saying we can't interpret the Bible. It's saying the Bible didn't come through men's own initiative or their own opinion or interpretive uh, efforts. It came by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So. Uh, I just think, Patrick, uh, uh, in your email, we got to take that one off the table. That doesn't prove the point that we need a uh, a divine or inspired interpreter of the scriptures. Do you agree?
4: Well, uh, no, but, <laughs> <laughs> but um, you know, I, I think there's more to it than that. Um, and one um, one reason I say that is, um, I, I think God through uh, the history of the Jews kind of uh, set a precedent um, because he uh, essentially sent Moses um, as his prophet and gave the Torah to the Jews um, even when Moses died um, his authority passed on first to Joshua and then uh, you know, in, in various forms uh, but essentially through the Sanhedrin the 71 elders and that that authority was passed
5: down from Moses up to the first century in Jesus' time. And well,
2: but but even in that even in that uh, Patrick, after Moses delivered the law, they they were not others who came along and added to it or altered it. There there they were. No, as you said, Joshua was the leadership of the children of Israel was passed on to Joshua. Later, judges came along and led the, the children of Israel. Later, kings came along. But we're talking about God's revealed truth. Uh, that, that's our pointed issue. There, God has had various authorized individuals to, uh, throughout the ages. But we're talking about God's revealed truth. And, and, the, and the challenge to a Catholic, to yourself or any other, is to prove that God today authorizes people to reveal or even divinely interpret the message from heaven, and that's just not in the Scripture.
1: Patrick, have you got a have you got a passage that you might reference where there would point us to to that where we would be able to have some indication that we should look to the Catholic Church to be our interpreter?
4: um I, I would first before I would try to argue that it was the Catholic Church in the first place would be um uh, to just try to demonstrate that um God even intended for there to be uh, an authority because I, I think that's um kind of comes before and and I think that's also kind of where we we disagree is that um uh you you believe that there there isn't a central authority that you know is is the Bible and there isn't a uh an interpreter.
1: Okay, and, Patrick, that, that that would be a good foundational. Why don't we take a break and you okay. and get your thoughts together. If you, if, you, if you got time to stay over during the break? Oh, sure. Let's do that, and then when we come back, we'll just go straight into that, and you can uh, give us your understanding on that. All okay. right, stay tuned. We'll continue the discussion right after this.
0: Enjoying the virtual Bible study? Email a friend during this break and tell them to join in on the discussion. There's more exciting Bible study after this commercial.
5: Hi, I'm Lane Crawford, a member of the College View Church of Christ. If you've never visited with the College View Church of Christ, you may be wondering what our worship services are like. One thing we have at every worship service is music. We believe God has commanded that music be a part of our worship. But something you may notice about our worship is that the music we have in our worship is different than the music used by many in the religious world today. The music we worship God with is strictly vocal. We don't believe God has commanded us to worship Him with instrumental music. Therefore, since we want God to approve of the worship we offer Him, we only worship in the way that He has specified. In Colossians 3.16, God instructs, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Instructions like this in which only vocal music is commanded are the only instructions we can find in the New Testament. Since God didn't tell us that he wanted us to worship him with instrumental music, how can we be sure that he wants that kind of worship? We do know that if we worship God like he prescribed with vocal music, that he'll be happy with that kind of worship. We hope you'll make plans to visit with the College Church of Christ to learn more about what our worship is like. We'd love to have you join us in worship of our Creator this Sunday at 9.30 a.m. My name is Alex Dvorak, reminding you to listen to the Virtual Bible Study every Thursday night at 8 o'clock Central Time.
0: Use your Internet connection for something good. Listen to the Virtual Bible Study every week. Now, back to the program.
1: And welcome back to the program tonight as we talk about Catholicism, and we're reviewing our discussion last week with David, who was a Catholic, and we have a Catholic on the phone from Birmingham, Alabama. Patrick is on the phone. and was kind enough to stay with us over the break. Patrick, before, before the break, you wanted to let us know that you believe the Bible teaches that we do need to have uh, an interpreter.
2: Uh, a, a, to, a divinely inspired interpreter. Uh,
1: of, the, of the scriptures. Um, I, I do. Okay.
2: Where, where, where are we going to go in the scriptures to establish that? Because we got an email from Aaron in Texas who says that uh, Ephesians chapter 3 verse 4 says that Paul seemed to expect the Ephesians could read what he wrote and understand it themselves. If they could do it then, why can't we do it now? Uh, we, we mentioned that verse last week. The, Paul says, When you read, you can understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. Why, if, if first century Christians could read and understand, why can't we read and understand the truth of the Scriptures?
4: I'm, I'm reading the. Uh... The, the passage now.
1: I'm trying to read. Yeah, quickly, P- Ephesians so. chapter three, verse four says, uh, beginning with verse three, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote afore in a few words, whereby when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. So the indication there is that uh, Paul was going to write what he had been inspired to write in such a manner that the Christians there in Ephesus could read that, understand the mystery that Paul had been revealed. And uh that could make the application to their lives. Well and and I'm I would not say
4: that uh, we can't gain any understanding from the scripture. And um I I think that, that Paul is indeed saying that that we can learn from his writings. But um, you know, you you have to take all of Scripture together and um you know, there are other passages in, in Scripture where um, you know, uh, and I, I think it was even read last week um, where, where Peter writes that some of uh, Paul's writings are hard to understand.
2: Hard um, but not impossible. He didn't say they're impossible to understand. He said that in Second in, in Peter chapter 3, verse 15, there are some things hard to be understood. He didn't say they're impossible to understand. We are, we're all willing to grant that there are portions of Scripture that are more difficult to understand than others. But it doesn't say it's impossible to understand. It doesn't say that I need uh, a divine interpreter to be able to understand. It just says I'm going to have to apply myself more to understand. Patrick, before we let you go, let me, let me turn, turn the uh, mic over to Jim. You said something just before our break that, that uh, sort of piqued his interest when you said that we don't believe in, in a central authority. And I think, Jim, you wanted to address that.
3: Yeah, I just—I I, didn't—I want to make sure I don't misrepresent. Was that what you said? That that uh, one of the the disagreements is that we uh, members of the Church of Christ do not believe in a central authority.
4: Well, and I—I I think what, what I said and what I was uh, intending was a a central authority outside of Scripture. Because uh, if I'm correct, your uh, that's that's where you believe your central authority is, or. Where um, I think, we, in a sense, we would agree that the God Himself is, is ultimately the authority. But...
3: It, right. I think that's that's the basic point we're trying to make, and that is that uh, as we read earlier, thinking about Ephesians chapter one, verse uh, twenty-one and twenty-two, where it talks about. Uh, the, the One of the testimonies of the resurrection is proof that Jesus is the Christ, the only begotten Son of God, that he is divine, and that God has provided unto him all power and all authority over the church, which power and authority he has never given up. And so we do believe in a central authority. We believe in the head who is Jesus Christ, and we believe that it is his word then that guides us, that word which has been revealed unto us. True, But I I think,
4: again, where where we disagree is, um, you know, whether uh, Jesus delegated his authority uh, to any human agent to to act on his behalf.
3: Well, uh, in effect, obviously he did. He sent the apostles out. And uh, we have that evidence of them being guided by the Holy Spirit to preach the things that he wanted them to preach. He said that uh, when we go to, you know, uh, such as uh, Matthew chapter, excuse me, uh, John chapter uh, 14 and verse 16 he said i will pray the father he shall give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it seeth him not uh, neither knoweth him but you know him for he dwelleth with you and shall be with you so there was the the promise of the the holy spirit yeah and in chapter 16 verse 13 he said he would guide them into all, all truth. truth right so, you know, fourteen, fifteen, and 16 of uh, John's Gospel deal with that concept of them being divinely guided to reveal God's truth. So, again, we have a, a central uh, focal authority head in Christ, and then we have uh, God delegating his word through the Holy Spirit unto the apostles, and they took that word out and they taught that word. And then we have passages like, again, in Ephesians chapter 3, where as that word was revealed, it was revealed in such a way that we could understand it and apply it. Hey, I'm sorry, Patrick.
1: I feel like we sort of have jumped a gun here a little bit because we held you over the break so that you could make make your argument, and uh, we didn't give you much time to do that. So uh, let, let's let you have the floor for just a few minutes here, and uh, so you can make your argument why you believe the scriptures teach that we need to have a, a divinely inspired interpreter of the scriptures.
4: Well, and, and I appreciate the courtesy, um, and just just a, a few words on what we were just speaking about. Is um, so I, I would say that uh, there there is a point that there we agree that uh, God did delegate uh, uh, some authority to a human agent. Um, but uh, so I suppose where we would actually diverge would be where, whether that uh, that uh, human agency of uh, authority um, was only for the first century or whether it continued to the present day. Um, but uh, what what I was uh, the the line of argument that I was making earlier. Um, and I obviously don't want to get it, get in uh, too deep because you know, time does not allow. But um, as I was saying, the authority that that God gave to Moses was passed on uh, up to the to the first century, and that that existed for um, a couple of thousand years from, from Moses to to the time of Christ. Um, and Jesus never one thing that he never did is even though he Uh, criticized the behavior of the Jewish leaders, uh, mostly for their hypocrisy and the fact that they uh, created uh, rules and laws difficult for the Jews to follow, Um, he never um, said that they didn't have the authority to do so. Uh, And there's a passage, uh, I don't have the scripture in front of me, but he tells his uh, followers to uh, not do as they do, but
3: to do as they teach because they sit in, in Moses' seat. Uh, Matthew 23,
4: verse 2. Right, so, so he's, he's confirming their authority, not denying it. Um, and so I would say, look, that uh, Jesus confirms that the authority that, that Moses had was passed on to, the, to his present day um, in, a, uh, in a human agency.
0: Well, let's
3: go ahead and take that then and and look at that concept. You know, what you're saying is that God has passed on Uh, authority through a human agent but the passage that you have just referenced jesus chastises those men for being hypocrites which means they did not teach god's word he said they bind verse four heavy burdens grievous to be born they lay them on men's shoulders but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers so jesus chastises them and then goes on throughout the rest of the chapter to call them hypocrites now unless you're willing to say that god establishes hypocrites to be the central authority figures, then I think you can't use that line of argument.
4: Well, I, and I disagree, and I, I say that because um, even if the the human agent, and in this case the Sanhedrin, um, was, was even sinful, um, that doesn't mean that God isn't working through them. Um, in the in the crucifixion narrative, um, the, the the high priest that year, um, it, I believe it's in the Gospel of John, chapter eleven. Yeah, yeah, he he prophesies be, not because he's a, a good man. I mean, he's trying to crucify Jesus, but yet God still prophesies through him um, simply on uh, on account of the fact that he holds the office of high priest that year.
3: Yes, so, but you then put yourself in a position of saying that God uses fallible men who do evil things to be the leaders of His people when. The New Testament scriptures establish the fact that he uses an infallible, sinless one, Jesus Christ to continue to be the head of his people.
2: Well, Patrick, we're up against a a hard break here. We need to take a break and we appreciate you for calling in. I obviously this continues to be um, the major obstacle between us. We, and 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 with all due respect, I don't think you've done your job of being able to prove from the scriptures that for us, let's at least say for now, for us in, uh, in the New Covenant era, you haven't proven that there are continuing revelations, continually divinely inspired interpreters of the Scripture, or that the Scriptures teach that such was needed or would be made available. And I think that's – I would just urge you to, to, to carefully consider that point. Uh, I, I, I've, I sincerely believe that you've put your trust in men – who've assumed a role that God never intended for them to have and who do not have the power that they claim to possess. And that being the case, I I fear that you've put yourself in a place of spiritual jeopardy for trusting them in that role. But we appreciate you calling in, Patrick.
4: Well, And I I appreciate uh, you're you're giving me some time to speak. Uh, I know we disagree, but uh, um, every time I've I've contributed to the show, you've always been very
2: respectful. Well, We we appreciate appreciate your participation, and I hope you'll keep doing so.
4: All right. Thank you. Thanks,
1: Thanks Patrick. Patrick. All right. We'll take a short break and continue the discussion right after this week's
2: bullet point.
0: Are you listening? There's going to be a test on this stuff. Stay tuned. The virtual Bible study will be right back after this.
2: This is Greg Gwyn with this week's bullet point. We have a very simple question to ask. Is your heart right with God? As you think about your answer to this most important of all questions, we'd like you to consider these observations. First. You might as well be honest about this, because in 1 John chapter 3, verse 20, it says, If our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. So then, if you've never obeyed the gospel, or if you are unfaithful in your service as a Christian, you ought to own up to the reality of your dangerous spiritual condition. After all, you can't hide these things from God. Secondly, judgment is as certain as life itself. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, it says, It is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment. Romans 14, verse 12 says, So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. Third, in light of these facts, perhaps you should begin right now thinking about a good excuse that you can use on the day of judgment. A few favorites will surely be, I was too busy. I didn't feel well. I had family obligations. My work demanded so much of my time. The people at church were unfriendly. I didn't like the preacher or the elders or the teachers. Feel free to pick any one of these, or perhaps you can come up with one of your own that seems more appropriate for your own particular situation. But we must warn you, however, that the excuse you choose, no matter how good it seems, will not be good enough. The truth of the matter is stated in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. So our best advice, then, is to get right with God. It is ultimately important, and excuses just won't get the job done. Not now, and certainly not in the judgment. That's this week's bullet point. Think about it. Hi, my name is Bob Tidwell, and I want to remind you that the Virtual Bible Study
1: provides a great opportunity to use your computer for something good. So turn off the TV and guide
5: your family around the computer each Thursday night for the Virtual Bible Study.
0: Share your comment with the world. Call in now and be a part of the virtual Bible study. Now, back to the program.
1: And welcome back to the virtual Bible study tonight. If you're listening to us or watching us from Ustream.tv, the chat room is getting crowded tonight. You may be able to join in with listeners there if you'll go out and uh, join in the chat room. And if you'd like to talk with us on the phone, it's 877-381-4567 or email questions at com. We're talking about Catholicism tonight on the program, and we've got... Dad, you posed five questions for yeah. us, and we haven't gotten through the first no. one adequately. No, real, quick,
2: real quickly, let me catch a, a chain of messages from Aaron in Texas, who says, I've heard the Catholic argument on private interpretation. Again, that's from 2 Peter 1, verses 19 through 21. They do not know that the word interpretation refers to its origin. Furthermore, their failure to understand this fact proves that they're not a reliable interpreter. An inspired interpreter would know that already, he says, Uh, He says, it's important that Paul's writings, if it's important that Paul's writings are hard to understand, then the Catholic Church today has the same problem. Catholics still debate the meaning of Vatican II, for example, and what it says about the status of non-Catholics and whether they can be saved without accepting the authority of the Pope. And a number of Catholics simply reject Vatican II for various reasons, including the fact that it seems to differ from previous Catholic instruction on that subject. If the inspired infallible interpreter cannot speak plainly enough for Catholics to understand, how is that better than having no interpreter? And he says uh and then in regards to these most recent comments about the teaching of the Pharisees, he says the teaching of the Pharisees was said specifically to be bad, Matthew sixteen twelve, for example, and that it made void the Word of God, Mark seven, verse thirteen. It's terribly awkward to say that their traditions had the same authority as Moses's, I'm surprised someone would even put forth that argument, and so he did condemn the teaching of the Pharisees, Matthew 16:12, and that it made the the Word of God void, Mark 7:13. I think those are good points, from Aaron. Thank you, Aaron.
1: We need to also address another passage. Are you done with the yeah, emails? Yeah. Well, another passage that Patrick referenced in his email, and I would like to have talked to him about this on the on the phone. I just now see it in his email. He references 1 Corinthians 13:8 through 13. He says, love never faileth, but whether there be prophecies, they shall be done away. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall be done away. For we know in part and prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect is come... That which is in part shall be done away. When I was a child, I spake as a child, I felt as a child, I thought as a child. Now that I am become a man, I have put away childish things. For, we, for now we see in a mirror darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as I also I was fully known, but now abideth faith, hope, love. These three, the greatest of these is love. Here's Patrick's explanation of that. He says, Now the passage from 1 Corinthians is often cited by members of the Church of Christ as a reason for belief that miracles and inspiration uh, uh, as a reason for belief that miracles and inspiration I believe has has ceased, he says, but to say that miracle that miracle, uh, that this teaches miracles, et etc have ceased is not totally plausible. He says that these things will cease when that which is perfect has come. You say this means the scripture or the completed New Testament. where does it say this? What it does say is when we see face-to-face, he is talking about when we see Jesus face-to-face. This can only mean one of two things, either when the individual goes to heaven and sees Jesus or when the end of the world comes and we all see Jesus uh, now before that time, not now, um, before that time as you teach. He says that we're going to have this divinely inspired interpretation, and it's going to last until Jesus comes again.
2: It's interesting that Patrick's argument is identical to that made by Pentecostals when they argue that this passage does not teach the end of miracles. Paul said that he, he mentions three specific miraculous manifestations of the Holy Spirit. I believe he intends that to be representative of them all. He talks about tongue speaking, prophecies, and divinely inspired knowledge. He, and, but notice, he says, we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect is come, then that which is part shall be done away. The the complete or perfect would be that which they had in part at that time. They had partial knowledge. When the complete or full knowledge was come, then the partial would be done away. The signs, the miraculous signs, were during that period in which the revelation of God was being made known. They knew in part when God's revelation was complete, they would know in full, and it would be complete. Uh, the, the grammar of this indicates that that which is done away would be done away when the complete, in other words, they had partial something, When they had the complete of that, the partial would be done away. It both referred to the revelation or knowledge of God's will.
3: But if his argument then is that we are still in a period of time where we have revelation and we have uh, inspiration because we have not come to that part which is complete, then you have to go to the other side of the argument and say that whatever we have is only partial. We will never have, according to his argument, we will never have the complete revelation of God until we see him face to face. That means never in our lifetime or any One's
1: and the english there doesn't make sense we would not say we would not refer to jesus as that we would refer to jesus as he right. and the other thing is when we get to the end of the passage in verse 13 it talks about three things that are going to remain when the perfect comes and when the perfect comes we're still going to have faith hope and charity faith hope and love right when jesus comes again when we see him face to face we will have neither faith nor hope those exactly. will be uh, exactly gone.
2: the reference to face to face now we see through a dark Glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as I am known? Paul was writing during the the time when the complete revelation had not been revealed. It was still in process. But when the complete revelation was finished, it's possible for me to know as I am known. If I want to know what God thinks of me, I can read in the scriptures, measure myself by the truth that's taught there. I can know myself as I am known by God. I can see clearly. I can see as though face to face. And that reference is James chapter 1, beginning verse 22. But be ye doers
1: of the word, not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like unto a man, beholding his natural face in a glass, seen face to face. He looks into the perfect law of liberty, uh, and he sees himself in a, in a glass, in a mirror. For he beholdeth himself, and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty, and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deeds. We have the perfect law of liberty. It is that mirror that allows us to see face to
2: face. Yeah, uh, Anthony in the chat room says face to face is just used because he uses the analogy of a mirror. And I think he's exactly right. Anthony had sent in an email in which he says he thinks 1 Corinthians 13 settles the matter, uh, along with the fact that the method of passing on miraculous gifts no longer exists. If we still needed gifts, there's no way to pass them on. But as he says, 1 Corinthians 13 uh, proves that there are no modern-day revelations or interpreters. There's no divinely inspired knowledge today. Uh, so thank you, Anthony, for your input on that. Uh, wait a minute, i got a real quick another email from Aaron in Texas. He says, Read the whole face-to-face verse. The phrase face-to-face is part of a metaphor. For a while, the church saw dimly as though seeing someone through a darkened glass. If face-to-face is literal, then what dim glass were they viewing through before? I think he's right. In other words, they... They could not see clearly because they didn't have complete revelation. Once they had it, they would see clearly.
3: Well, and it's a convenient doctrine because, in effect, what it says is that the Catholic Church, specifically the Pope, the Magisterium, the Holy See, whatever reference of term they give to him and to those who counsel him, are the only ones who are authorized to, quote-unquote, interpret Scripture. That means that they are the only ones to get to say whether something is right or wrong. If you challenge them, then you are automatically wrong because their point of view is that we are the only ones that have the authority to say whether something is right or wrong and so it's a convenient doctrine for them because it allows them to say everything and no one can challenge it because you are unauthorized and they are authorized and yet the scriptures provide any number of examples of individuals who understand God's word even when they weren't the people of God. When Paul stood before Agrippa he said these things you've heard, I know you believe the prophets. When uh, Rahab heard about uh, the, the things that were going on in Egypt and they had sent the men the spies into Jericho, she said we heard these things, they made us fear. There was belief in the knowledge of what god provided by these individuals who weren't children of god that they could hear god's word understand god's word and obey god's
2: word i think you're exactly right it it, if god didn't make himself clearly known then we could put the fault for man's lost condition on him right and that's not the case All right, Jay, I think we've got to quickly move to our next point. We were going to talk about celibacy. We've got less than 20
1: minutes and four more things to go, so it's going to be rapid fire for Brad.
2: Yeah, real quickly on celibacy, again, I got an email from Patrick after last week's program. Uh, he, He references 1 Timothy 5, verse 9, Let none be enrolled as a widow under threescore years old, having been the wife of one man. But younger widows refuse, for when they have waxed wanton against Christ, they desire to marry, having condemnation because they have rejected their first pledge. Now, here's Patrick's comment. He said, why would Paul say that younger widows would have condemnation when they desire to marry? Does not Paul say that widows have the right to remarry? They would have condemnation for desiring to marry if they had taken a vow of celibacy. These widows were taking vows of celibacy. Essentially, what we have here is an account of an early convent and
3: early nuns. Yeah, he's reading into that something which obviously isn't there. For them to have been widows means they had to have been married. You know, that that is stretching it so much. It's it's. Well, in 1 Timothy 5, what we've got there, uh, he, he
2: mentions 1 Timothy 5, verse 9, Let not a widow be taken into the number. And I believe the proper interpretation of this passage is that number was a number of widows who would become the permanent benevolent responsibility of the church. Don't bring them in and make them a permanent charge of the church unless they meet these qualifications. Specifically, don't bring in younger widows because younger widows, by by virtue of their younger age, are going to desire to marry again. Then you've got a problem. You've, you've brought this woman in. Uh, You made her a permanent charge of the church for benevolent purposes. Now she's marrying again. And so don't do that. He he says uh, that he's explaining why he makes the condition that a woman uh, has to be uh, at least 60 years old before she is brought in to become the permanent benevolent responsibility of the church. Now, that's not saying that others can't be helped by the church, but these ones were added to a list or made a, a part of a role in which they were the permanent benevolent responsibility. Well, the, the, same,
3: the same concept of celibacy, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. This is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth the good worth. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife. There are no bishops in the Catholic Church who are married. Priests are forbidden to marry by the Catholic Church. Yet the Scriptures say that for a man to take uh, responsibility, to be qualified to be an overseer, he must be married. You know, you cannot teach one thing, that someone can be a bishop, but then ignore the scriptures which define what makes him a bishop and for, right
2: there in First Timothy in chapter four, Paul warned that there would some there would be some verse three who would forbid to marry and command to abstain from meats and and he, and he refers to that as a falling away uh, that that some would be guilty of that. Anthony has written uh, he says, "I was actually just recently reading the passage about marriage in 1 Corinthians seven. Paul, Paul clearly teaches that one may choose to be celibate, unmarried, in order to serve the Lord more fully. I'm sure Catholics would say this is where they get their teaching, perhaps. If a person wants to take a personal vow of celibacy, I suppose they can. But the way the Catholics have institutionalized nuns and monks is totally unscriptural, and I, I I would agree. In other words, a man can choose. We're, we're, our challenge to the Catholics is what's their authority to bind celibacy? We're not talking about a voluntary choice of celibacy. Where's the authority to bind celibacy, especially for those, as you said, bishops yeah, yeah. who the Scripture says have to be married? Well, not only
3: that. you know, They say Peter was the first pope, and they reject Paul, but Paul was the single one. Peter was the married one. So you know, it, it's convenient for them to set up an argument, but then it, all the evidence for their argument falls through. I think right.
1: right. We can't be married to this point. We've got to go on to the other. So let's go. We're out of time. We'll take another break, and then we'll go to the top of the hour. Three more questions to go. Join in the discussion. Don't go anywhere. The virtual Bible study continues right after
0: this. After these important messages, we'll be back to take your comments. Email them during this break.
6: I'm Tom Goodall, a member of College View Church of Christ. Do you have a question about what has been said on the virtual Bible study tonight? Perhaps you disagree with something that was said or would just like more information about what you've heard. If so, we'd love to hear from you. Please contact us with any questions or comments that you might have. Email us at questions at collegeview.com and we can discuss any of your questions or comments with you privately or over email. Or if you would like to speak with someone in person, call us at 931 381 Four, five, six, seven. Our promise to you is that we'll do our very best to give you a Bible answer for anything that we do or teach, and that we will do so in a loving manner. So if you have any questions or comments about our program tonight, or any Bible subject, email us at questions at collegeview.com or call 931-381-4567. Thanks for listening to tonight's virtual Bible study, and we hope to hear from you soon.
2: My name is Jack Coleman a member of the College View Church of Christ. We're glad you're listening to the Virtual Bible Study, and we hope you'll tell others about the program. We're always open to your feedback concerning topics for discussion and suggestions as how we can make the program more effective. Drop us a line at questions at collegeview.com or call us toll-free at 877-381-4567.
0: And whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. Colossians three seventeen. Now, back to the program.
1: And welcome back to the Virtual Bible Study tonight, 877-381-4567. Questions at collegeview.com. We're looking forward to hearing from you on the program We've got
2: to go fast. We've got three things to say in 15 minutes. We're going to talk about the Catholic Church establishing the canon of Scriptures. Jim, are they the ones who told us what should and should not be in the New Testament?
3: Well, you know, if a person were living in the 3rd or 4th century A.D., the concept of the Catholic Church would have been foreign to them. When you think about someone like Boniface III, who was the first individual to take upon him the title of universal Bishop or Pope, that was in the 7th century, in the 600s. 606, six, I believe. Right. So the, the establishment, the the use of the Bible as we know it in its present form was being used by uh, Christians in uh, the 2nd century. And it was confirmed. We go back and look at those individuals that are often referred to as the church fathers, you know, Oregon, uh, uh, Eusebius, these individuals all of what we have in our bible today they said was in use so the fact of the matter was that it was in use and then in the 4th century it was uh, individuals came together and agreed that that was that was official and even if we were to say that was the work of men it wasn't the work of the catholic church because it didn't exist yet
2: that's right and and my argument from last week was christians of the 1st century believed that the the writings of these inspired uh, apostles and prophets they believed them to be the inspired word of god and considered them so before the ink dried on the page. They didn't have to wait until some some convention or conference of the of, of the of the Catholic Church, which right. wasn't even right. existent right. in its fullness, uh, three hundred years later. When Paul wrote, or when Peter wrote about Paul, when he said there's some things too hard to be understood, he he referred to the, thing, the writings of Paul as Scripture, and that was and that was in the, in the first century. We know in First Thessalonians chapter five, or excuse me. Um, uh, Colossians chapter 3, Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. When this epistle is read among you, cause it to be read also in the church of the Laodiceans. These epistles were being circulated among the churches in the first century. In fact, historically, there's some evidence that there was a compilation of these writings, these epistles of the inspired apostles and so forth, as early as 115 A.D. The Catholic Church did not establish the canon of the scriptures. Basically, what they did when they came along with their conferences in the three hundreds was to confirm what Christians already had accepted long before that these were the inspired works of God.
3: Let's assume they did. Let's assume that they did establish the canon of the scripture. They did a very poor job of providing any evidence whatsoever for the Catholic church, for the celibacy of priests, for the authority of the Pope, for praying to Mary, for having nuns, for taking the Holy Eucharist, any of the things that they teach as that which must be done to be part of the Catholic Church, there is no evidence in the scriptures. So if they provided the canon, they did a very poor job of providing any evidence to establish the authority of the Catholic Church.
2: Uh, Anthony writes in, uh, Jake, have you got that?
1: He does. Uh, he says absolutely not about it. did they, did they uh, determine the canon. He says the Catholics somehow determined the canon some 200-plus years after the fact. They would have to claim some sort of miraculous wisdom or knowledge. But we have refuted that question. Uh, this in question number one. Furthermore, it's not as if they settled the matter. The rest of Christendom rejects the Apocrypha, yet the Catholics consider it canonical. Uh Luther thought that James was illegitimate, etc. If they were divinely inspired to give the world the Bible, then God would not have allowed
2: further disagreement about it. Right. Okay. Good point. So, we, again, we are sincerely and emphatically denying the claim of the Catholic Church that they told that they gave us the Bible, that they told us what we should believe was the inspired work of god all right next question
1: are the catholics right about their doctrine concerning purgatory and this is the one that david said last week was the hardest for him to accept it i can probably i could see that because i can't find anything about it in he he said
2: when, when he was asked what was the hardest catholic doctrine for you to accept he said purgatory he said he thinks he understands it now better than he did then he said it's not explicitly taught in the scriptures to which i say amen he said it's it's, it's not it, implicitly it, it, He said either. it's
3: implicitly taught,
2: and I don't know where. I, 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 I'm still looking for that. Jim, any thoughts on purgatory? Well, you know, my,
3: my first thought, of course, you know, when I was a kid growing up, I was taught that uh, most all of us are going to go to purgatory. It is a place of purging where we are going to do penance. Uh, and, of course, as a young boy, I was taught that uh, having someone's name said in mass or lighting candles and saying prayers would go towards their benefit to get them released. But, you know, the closest thing we can find to an intermediate period Prior to judgment is Luke 16 where we have Lazarus and the rich man. And Abraham clearly says with respect to the rich man that where he is, he's not getting out of there. You know, uh, Abraham said, uh, verse 25, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest the good things. Likewise, Lazarus evil. Now he is co- uh, tor- comforted. Thou art tormented. Uh, Luke 16, verse 26. Beside all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass for men's to you cannot neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. So in other words, you can't get out. So he says, let me go back. Let me go back and let me warn my, my five brethren. And Abraham says, no, you can't leave there. Yeah. So it's not a position of someone saying, well, we're going to offer up so many prayers and get this person out. You know, when you're in torment, you're in torment. You don't get out.
2: That's right. Uh, here, here's, here's what the Catholics teach about uh, purgatory the faith of the church concerning purgatory is clearly expressed in the decree of union drawn up by the council of Florence and in the decree of the council of Trent, which defined as follows, uh, whereas the Catholic church instructed by the Holy ghost has from the sacred scriptures and the ancient tradition of the fathers taught in the councils. And very recently in this ecumenical synod, that there is a purgatory and that the souls therein are helped by the suffrages of the faithful, but principally by acceptable sacrifice of the altar. Uh, the, the idea is the, that departing the life, those who depart this life in God's grace are not entirely free from venial faults and have not fully paid the satisfaction due to their transgressions. And so the idea is you gotta go there and then people who are still living will pray for you and offer gifts in your behalf and then you'll, you'll be able to move on up out of there. Right, right. But there's nothing like that. I mean, no, that, that no. Is, that's made out of whole cloth. There's sure. nothing in the scriptures that teaches that. Uh, well, it's, it's just, it's it's just
3: th- another way for them to have a position of authority over people and to uh, you know, gain their uh, trust in saying, well, if I don't trust the Catholic Church, then I'm not going to get out. Once I go there, I won't have anybody praying to get me out.
1: Quickly, Anthony in Columbia says, I'm sure the Catholics would offer some questionable scriptural basis for this doctrine. What I've learned from listening to debates is that Catholics attempt to connect their practices to scriptures, but these attempts are extremely flimsy and do not hold up under any uh, hold up to any proper holistic understanding of the bible but what they can very weakly connect but they can very weakly connect their teachings with Bi- the bible and still get away with it because at the same time they claim the bible is too complex to be understood just by using your own intellect logic and reasoning in other words to believe their interpretations of scripture you'd have to abandon common sense not to think for yourself and just quote
2: drink the kool-aid hmm. okay that's a strong words but I, i'd have to agree Uh, The
1: last one, is it right to pray to Mary? We've got to get that.
2: uh, uh, Randy in Jackson, Missouri writes, I asked a Catholic friend this question about praying to Mary a while back. He said they don't pray to Mary in the same sense that they pray to God. What they do is ask Mary to pray for them or intercede for them. He said this is no different than asking a friend to pray for you. That's the same thing that David said last week. Uh, Wade in Hampshire, Tennessee, says it doesn't seem to me that those who have died can can even communicate or know what's going on here. Consider the rich man in Luke 16, verses 27 through 30. Uh, he said, I pray thee, therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house, for I have five brethren, that he may testify to them, lest they come to this place of torment. Abraham said to them, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went to them from the dead, they will repent. In other words, Wade's point is, can the dead, communi- can we communicate with the dead? And in the, in- in the-, the-, the 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 teaching of Scripture is that we can't. I- on this Praying to Mary, and it's no different than me saying to you, Jacob, Jacob, pray for me. I need, I need you to pray for me. I got, I got this issue I'm dealing with. Please pray for me. Now we do that. I mean, that's that's something that Christians do mutually for one another. I don't believe that's what uh, they do to in, in the case of Mary. I've got. Um, well, I when I was
3: a kid, you know, I prayed the rosary. You pray to Mary. You pray for her assistance. You pray for her help because you are taught that she is the mother of God and that she will be able to move Jesus. Whereas, um, you know, we can look at 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he advocate. is the propitiation for our sins. And, and advocate. Right. Here's here's one of the prayers
2: that Catholics pray to Mary. It's called a memorari. Does that sound right? I'm not sure. Uh I got this from a Catholic website. This is one of the prayers that they would suggest praying to Mary. Remember, most loving Virgin Mary, never was it heard that anyone who turned to you for help was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, though burdened by my sins, I run to your protection, for you are my mother, mother of the word of God. Do not despise my words of pleading. Be merciful and hear my prayer. Amen. You know, Jacob, I've asked people to pray for me before, but I've never used those kind of terms. And you don't
3: pray to them. You, yeah, you make I, a request. You I, don't pray to them. Yeah.
2: Uh, another there's another one here in latin sub presidium i don't know latin hey, it sounds good to me it, uh, we turn to you for protection holy mother of god listen to our prayers and help us in our needs save us from every danger glorious and blessed virgin i'll tell you that's different than just asking somebody to pray for you
3: yeah they can't get away they can't get away with just saying it's the same as asking someone for help because The whole concept of Mariology is to look upon her as someone divine, that she was assumed bodily into heaven, that she is free of sins, that she was ever virgin. She is divine, and she's not just a regular person in Catholic doctrine.
1: Along those lines, Anthony in Columbia says, Catholics insist they do not worship Mary. This is one thing they like to hammer on and use as as a supposed example of how others misrepresent and misunderstand them. But you can call it whatever you want. Catholics have no scriptural basis for the elevation and veneration of Mary, which they practice. As referenced above, they will wakely claim that Luke 1, verse 48 is authority for what they do, but this verse is no authority at all. We we all, you have something?
3: I was just going to add one more thing. You know, when I was a kid and we had to go to confession and we would do penance, we were told to say our fathers or hail Mary's to have our sins uh, absolved. So, you know, you can't say praying to Mary is just asking for her help when they put the prayer to her on the same level as the prayer to God.
1: Anthony goes on, We only have authority to pray to the Father, and some would argue Jesus. We have no authority, command example inference, for praying to anyone else. Catholics defend praying to Mary by saying they aren't doing anything other than asking her to pray for them. They would say, wouldn't you ask a fellow Christian to pray for you? And, of course, we would if they are living. We have no biblical basis for praying to dead souls that have gone on before.
2: We can't, as Wade said in his email, there's no evidence that we can communicate uh, with the dead. Uh, Aaron, in in Texas, there are there are words for those who try to talk to the dead. Necromancer, for example, and such attempts to communicate are condemned clearly in the Bible,
3: such as uh, Saul with the uh, witch of Endor.
2: Exactly right. All right. Well, we
1: are out of time, but we did it. We got through we, we got through, man. We had to rush, but we got through. Thank you, Jim, for being here tonight. Thank you for asking me. And, Dad, thank you. Thanks, Jacob. Again, thanks to David and for Patrick for joining us this week and for uh, their input. And we appreciate uh, having the other side presented so that we can compare it with what the Scriptures teach. We hope you benefited from our discussion tonight. If you have any questions about the things that we've said, we've encouraged you to get in touch with us so that we can have a further discussion with you. We hope you'll make plans to be back here next week for another edition of the Virtual Bible Study. And in the meantime... We encourage you to put God first in your life, study His inspired Word, the Bible, and live by it every day. You'll never regret it.